Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. For nearly two months now, we have hosted these online briefings to offer you a chance to hear directly from some of our nation's most distinguished scholars as our nation confronts the challenges of COVID-19. The work coming out of the institution has led to significant impacts on, on important policy initiatives for decades, and we will continue to find solutions to get us through this current crisis and position our country for a strong future. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions, and I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. This morning, the Department of Labor released a historic jobs report showing unemployment numbers not seen since the Great Depression. In today's briefing, we get to hear from an acclaimed labor economist, Ed Lazier, and a distinguished historian, Neil Ferguson. Ed is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He also served in the White House from 2006 to 2009, where he was chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Neil is also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, a senior fellow at Harvard Center for European Studies, as well as a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He is the author of 15 books, including his most recent, The Square and the Tower, which was a New York Times bestseller. In addition, Neil is an award-winning filmmaker, having won an international Emmy for his PBS series, The Ascent of Money, and you may have recently seen his three-part PBS television series entitled Networld. Ed and Neil, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Good to be with you, Tom. Great. Uh, Ed, let's start with you as the economist. Uh, tell us about today's numbers and what they tell us. Well, uh, obviously, the first thing they tell us is that there has been uh, an, there's an enormous amount of pain out there uh, that's being reflected in these numbers. The unemployment rate um, was uh, almost 15 percent. Uh, but unfortunately, that unemployment rate report is actually an understatement of the amount of unemployment that we actually have. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which uh, reports those numbers to us every month, gathers the data on the 12th of the previous month. So what they were looking at was a snapshot taken about April 12th or so. And since that time, we've had a, a large number of people entering the pool of unemployed. So if you use the actual number of people that we have unemployed, uh, start back uh, where we were before this stuff started. We had about 5 million unemployed. Since that point, we've had 35 million new claims, new unemployed claims. So that means we're probably at about 40 million people unemployed right now, which puts our unemployment rate uh, back at Great Depression levels. So um, that's obviously you know, very bad news. Uh, it's not surprising news, but it is, uh, it is a reflection of what's going on out there. There were a couple of other um, somewhat more esoteric but important points in the, in the jobs report that I think give us a preview of where we're going uh, over the next, um, next few quarters. Uh, one of the surprising things was that hours, average weekly hours was up. Now, usually in a recession, what happens is employers cut the number of hours that individuals work. In this one, it actually went higher. And at the same time, something else happened that was truly bizarre. And that is that the average wage jumped and jumped dramatically. And you kind of say, well, how, how could that be? How could the wages jump during this period of time? 
And once you think about it for a minute, you realize, well, what happened was they, um, they got rid of all the low wage workers. And so what we have left right now are relatively high wage workers, each of whom is working longer hours than they otherwise would. And I think that's probably what's going to happen as we, as we move into the recovery. Uh, so this is going to, this is going to take us a while. Uh, but, um, I want to stop there and, and, uh, let Neil comment on, on, on where yeah, he sees it going. If you would, please, you're a story. But put this in historical perspective. Eddie mentioned the word Great Depression, but we got to this level of unemployment literally in six weeks. How does that compare with what happened in the Great Depression? Well, it certainly compares in, in the sense that the unemployment rate that's just been announced is, uh, is up there with the, the rates that the United States uh, experienced in the early 1930s. Uh, you might not know that if you, you were just following this in the mainstream media, because journalists generally don't go for data sets that, that uh, extend as far back as the early 30s. So they just say it's unprecedented. But it's not unprecedented. Actually, this is uh, the highest unemployment rate uh, that the country has seen since 1934. Mm -hmm. But I think the really interesting question that, that Eddie just uh, raised is how high is it going to go from here? Because uh, for sure, this isn't the peak, and uh, if uh, if that's the April twelfth rate, uh, you've got to ask yourself uh, where where are we going to be uh, when the the numbers next come out? And I think the really alarming prospect is that we we could match the the nineteen thirty two peak, which uh, was just around twenty three percent. In fact, there's even a scenario. And this is something you, Eddie, and I were discussing earlier, that, that we could an, end up with a higher unemployment rate than at the peak of, of the Depression, uh, maybe as high as 26 or 27%, which is a really eye-watering prospect. And, uh, and that will be something we can call unprecedented, because that will be the highest unemployment rate in, in American history. I, I think the key issue that you raised, Tom, is about the time frame. Th this is all happening at lightning speed, uh, whereas, in fact, the the depression was kind of slow-mo by comparison. Remember, the depression kind of kicks off with the Wall Street crash conventionally. Some economic historians would even say it started earlier. Uh, and so from 1929, the unemployment rate grinds up to a peak in 32 towards the end of Herbert Hoover's presidency. I mean, this is, uh, this is a process that took years. And of course, it took even longer for unemployment to come down because the New Deal policies of, of Hoover's successor weren't actually that effective in, in getting Americans back to work. Well, we're living through some kind of warp speed version of the Great Depression, it feels like. Uh, what used to take a year is taking a week or maybe a month. And, uh, and I must say, this is, uh, this is something that's really very disconcerting uh, to, to the historian. To, to see history but speed it up is a, is a kind of unnerving thing. And it raises the huge question, which is, will we go back up as fast as we've come down? Uh, and maybe that's a question for Eddie. Yeah, let me, let me before we get into that, let's, let's uh, dig into the numbers a little bit more, Eddie. Could you tell us what the, the employment numbers mean for predictions about how much GDP is contracted? Sure, uh, so there's a, there's a rule of thumb that economists use. It's actually called Oaken's Law after the individual who invented it 70, 80 years ago, actually, back in the, in the mid-20th century. Um, but that rule actually seems to have worked quite well, and it continues to work, even if you look at the data, say, from the 2007 to 2009 recession, it predicts pretty well. 
And the rule is simple. Just take the change in the unemployment rate, multiply it by two, and that's going to be the decline in GDP. So what that would say is if we had an unemployment rate that went up to, say, Great Depression levels, 23%, we would be talking about an increase in the unemployment rate of about 20 percentage points from its low of 3.5% up to about 23%. So you got 20 percentage points, double that, and that tells you you're going to have a decline of something like 40% uh, in the GDP numbers in Q2. Now, that's on an annual basis, and it's important to think about this in terms of an annual basis because no one expects that kind of uh, change to actually be sustained throughout the year. We think of it as a one-quarter deal. Hopefully, things will, will turn around, but it will be a, an enormous decline, and I think uh, you know, when people see those GDP numbers, uh, not that we don't expect them. It's kind of like the employment numbers today, unemployment rates, we expected them. But it's, it's still shocking when you see numbers of that magnitude. We've never seen anything like that before. And coming back to, to Neil's point, I mean, if you look at the Great Depression, it took a lot longer. And the whole decline during the Great Depression wasn't even as, as large as that. So um, these, are, these are just unprecedented numbers. I know uh, Neil never likes people to say unprecedented because he's got <laughs> a historic perspective. And, and everything that we think we've seen today that's never happened before has happened somewhere before. But I'm going to use that word because it's certainly unusual. I think it's warranted in this case, Eddie. <laughs> you get permission. Uh, where do we, what does the future look like? Is this, are we going to have a V-shaped recovery where we, as soon as we control the virus, we go back to normal? Or is there a more complex story to be told about this? Neil, go ahead. Well, uh, of course, as soon as we control the virus, well, I don't know when that's going to be, because uh, let's remember that this isn't a financial crisis. It's a public health crisis that led to a macroeconomic crisis because we shut the economy down. Uh, we are still a long way from being able to say that the virus is contained. I think epidemiologists have encouraged the public to think you just have to flatten one curve and you're done. But that's not the history of pandemics. The history of pandemics is that there are multiple waves. This is probably a two-year uh, process. There's no guarantee there'll be a vaccine next year, although, you know, you've got to keep your fingers crossed. So I think the key thing to remember here is that the, the major driver of this crisis, the public health problem, isn't about to just oblige by going away on Memorial Day. That's a highly unlikely scenario. Uh, then you take a look at what we've, we've done to the supply side of the economy with uh, lockdowns and really some of the most important states uh, in the country, indeed in the case of California, really one of the world's biggest economies. Uh, the idea that we're just going to kind of switch the light back on, I think, is at odds with all I know about economic history. I'm, I'm looking all the time at wonderful V-shaped projections from Wall Street economists. Uh, they were summed up in a, an article Gavin Davis wrote in the Financial Times the other day. I, I just think this is a fantasy that, that we just kind of go leaping back up uh, more or less as fast uh, as we came down and back to the level we were at in January. Come on, this is just not remotely plausible. Uh, I think that the lesson, even of quite recent history, let's go back to the financial crisis of 08-09, is that uh, it's a much slower return that you have to go through after uh, uh, a serious recession. You, you go down fast and then you crawl your way back. I, I think it took about six years uh, for employment to get back to where it had been 
on the eve of the Lehman Brothers bust. Uh, and this is, as we've just decided, something a great deal bigger, potentially even Great Depression-sized, if, if a much faster process than the Great Depression. So I don't buy the, the V-shape at all. I think it's a, it's a dream. Uh, I, I seem to remember some of those same institutions predicting a V-shape in 2009, and that didn't happen. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I kind of think of this a bit like um, a, a square root sign, only backwards, where you sort of start up here quite at a high level, then you plunge down here, uh, and then you go up, but not all the way up, and then you sort of flatten out. And that, that's a sort of disturbing prospect that, that actually, when you add supply side and demand side shocks together, it may actually be very difficult to get back to where we were anytime soon. Eddie, I don't know what you think. Yeah, Eddie, would you answer that? And you, and you kind of, could you also tell us how the, the stock market behavior informs your assessment of what the economy looks like over the next few quarters? Sure. Uh, okay, let me, let me uh, take those two in turn. So let me address that. I'm a little bit more optimistic than, uh, than Neil. I don't think of it as a square root. I think of it as a check mark. So um, the difference between a check mark and a square root is that the check mark continues to go back up and you get pretty much to the same level and eventually above where you were. Um, I don't think we'll level off, but I do think, I agree with Neil, I think this is going to take longer than just a couple of quarters. Uh, I would expect that this will take at least six to eight quarters to return to even the levels that we were at back in February. And if we do that, we're still not back because we've lost two years worth of growth. So we should be, you know, at that point, we should be five, 6% ahead of that point, not, not back to where we were. Um, but I'd settle. If we get back to where we were within six to eight quarters, I'd say that's victory. Uh, this has been such an enormous shock to the economy. So that would, that would be good news. Um, in terms of the stock market and what, what it's predicting, let, let, me, let me again think of that in, in two separate ways. I, I like to look at the stock market. I always think that the stock market is the best predictor of yeah. future economic activity. I don't like to predict the stock market. I like it to predict me. Yeah. Uh, and so um, what usually happens is if you look at the stock market, look at the change in S&P 500, that's the best indicator I've found empirically. Uh, that right now is predicting about 0% growth over the next four quarters. Now, I, I want to I add a caveat to that. That's based on a model that was estimated using historic data, but we don't have anything like this event built into the history. So trying to extrapolate from those events of the past to the event that we're seeing right now is a little bit dangerous. And my gut feel is that it's, it's too optimistic that we will not have a 0% here. That would mean that we essentially get back to where we are now. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's more like six to eight quarters. Um, the other thing I think that people are looking at, and you know, we, we look at it daily, we're following the S&P, we're following the Dow, following NASDAQ, what's, what's going on? And of course, you know, initially it took this major decline and we thought we were all, everybody was wiped out and now it's, uh, it's come back considerably. It's not back to its peak, but it's certainly come back considerably. And I think people are kind of scratching their heads and saying, given what's going on right now, how can we be back up to 24,000 in the Dow? And the way I think about it is this. Uh, again, let's go back to the six to eight quarter return to uh, February levels. If that were the case, what we would lose is about two years worth of productivity, of growth, and uh, of output. 
And if you said, well, take the discounted present value of that, which is the way we think about the stock market working, that would give you kind of decline that we see now, because at that point, we're sort of back to where we were. It's like redating things uh, at February 2020 and just moving it up two years. And that's about where we were, where we are. So uh, the, the 15, 20% decline, again, depending on where you date the peak, where you, where you benchmark it, um, would not be quite so crazy if that scenario holds. And, and again, as I say, that's, uh, that may be an optimistic scenario, but it's certainly not as optimistic as the V-shaped ones that Neil was talking about earlier. Yeah, got it. So you're talking about eight, eight months, eight months, 10 months of over 10% unemployment, that kind of qualifies as a depression, right? Um, oh yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, Neil, in terms of history, uh, how would you evaluate uh, policy in the country in terms of combating depression, monetary policy, fiscal policy? Are we, do we know more now than what we did and are we in better shape from that perspective? That's a great question to ask. Uh, I, I used to tell my, my Harvard class back in 2009 that if you wanted to understand what Ben Bernanke was going to do at the Fed, you just needed to read Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's Monetary History of the United States and assume that he'd do the opposite. Because, of course, an established uh, truth about what went wrong in the United States in the early 1930s is that the Fed did everything wrong. It tightened monetary policy numerous times when it should have been easing it. And it drove a huge number of American banks uh, uh, over the edge. And, and that really explains why the American Depression was so much worse than the Depression in many other parts of the world. I mean, the British Depression was much less severe. So I think there's a story to be told here that goes something like this. We learned the lessons of the Great Depression, and when a financial crisis came along in 2008-2009, we managed to avoid repeating the mistakes of the early 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, and we used monetary policy in the spirit of Friedman, and then we also threw in some fiscal policy in the spirit of John Maynard Keynes. And that's why after 2009, we didn't have 10 long years of, of depression. We had a kind of slow, not very spectacular uh, recovery. And, and that's why we don't talk about the second Great Depression. We call it the Great Recession or something along those lines. I, I, you know, I wonder if, though, that those tools that we used in 2009-10 are really going to be uh, as efficacious in the face of this very different crisis, which isn't a financial crisis. It, it, it's a public health crisis, which has been compounded by economic lockdowns that were state ordered to contain the virus. And I think in that sense, you know, when you look at the stock market, I can't help wondering if maybe the people who's, uh, who's buying and selling is driving those moves are, are making the mistake, the category error even, of thinking that this is just another financial crisis, when I don't think it is. I mean, ultimately, another way of thinking about this, to go back to the stock market, is to say, well, the Fed's kind of committed itself to zero interest rates as far as the eye can see, or near zero. So in that sense, uh, you might as well assume that the, the, the discounted revenues of, uh, of all these uh, various companies, many of which aren't obviously badly affected by a pandemic, say the big tech companies, which are what, about 20% of the index these days? I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe that is actually not a bad way to think about it. But I wonder if there isn't another correction just around the corner, as indeed was a feature of the early 1930s, the moment of truth when people say, you know what, actually, there's no way the earnings are going to be what we were thinking they were going to be, or 
actually there's going to be a second wave of the pandemic or hang on a second consumers don't appear to be returning to the to the malls the way we were kind of assuming so i do think that uh, eddie's right when he says his familiar model might be over optimistic and there's unquestionably a risk for investors that uh, despite massive fiscal and monetary stimulus uh, it's not really stimulus it's it's just relief of a right. crisis which is far from over, we might just see another correction uh, at some point in the next, say, month or two. Yeah. Uh, Eddie, back to you. Our colleague, Ken Judd, asked questions about whether today's reports reveal anything about the ratio of layoffs to permanent separations. And I know that you've thought more deeply about the distributional impacts of the virus and the policies adopted because of the virus. Who's hurt? Who benefits? Could you say something about that? Yeah, uh, again, kind of took two separate points there. So let me take each one in turn. Let me get, let me get to Ken's first. Um, uh, one of the things that was somewhat surprising in this month's uh, labor report, jobs report, they, they don't usually do this, but they put in a note. And the note said that we think the current unemployment rate understates the true unemployment rate. And not for the reason that I gave earlier, not that because it was dated, you know, uh, April 12th as opposed to now, but because when they ask the question, the way the survey is done is they go around to households and they say, are you active, are you working or, and if not, are you actively seeking work? And uh, I, I think what had happened was when they do that, people who are furloughed temporarily, but still think that they are going back to their jobs are reporting that they're employed when in fact they are not employed. That really should show up as an un unemployed worker and it is not showing up as an unemployed worker. So uh, to Ken's point, I think that the number is actually understating the true unemployment figure at this point. Now, you know, at some, at, at some stage, maybe a month from now, we'll almost catch up with that, but uh, that's an important point in terms of, of um, of reading those numbers. The other, the second point that you made, Tom, which is a really important point, is that the, unfortunately, the distribution of these costs are not uniform across the economy. And I say unfortunately because they are being borne by those people who could less bear, least bear the cost, least deal with the costs. Uh, if you look at the unemployment, look at the number of jobs lost, look at who lost their jobs last, uh, last month. Over, well, approximately half of them were in retail and leisure and hospitality. Uh, retail and leisure and hospitality are low wage occupations. So in leisure and hospitality, it's $17 an hour. In retail, it's $19 an hour. For the country as a whole, it's $29 an hour. So the people who are losing their jobs are uh, the ones who are going to not only be at the low part of the income distribution, but also have the smallest buffers. You know, they don't have the savings that they can rely on. So that's a big problem. One last point on that is it's also true about the small businesses. If you look at the GDP report from last quarter and you say, which businesses contracted? Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was textiles and shoes and it was in recreation and small business owners in those two areas are among the lowest earning small business owners. So we're talking about really small business owners. Again, they're the ones with the least amount of credit, the least amount of assets that'll allow them to sustain the shock. So it's problematic, no yeah. doubt. Neil, you've written, you've written extensively on leadership in times of crisis. Um, how would you evaluate the leader, leadership of uh, the, the political leadership in America to this point, and where should we pivot to now? What do our leaders need to be doing 
to help us navigate through this. Well, Tom, I'm, I'm going to uh, resist the, the widespread uh, temptation to just beat up on the president, which is kind of how the mainstream media tends to to characterize what's happened. It's, it's kind of all about him. That, that I don't think is the right way to think about it. Uh, in, in truth, uh, the United States uh, on paper at the end of 2019 was as well prepared for a pandemic as any country in the world. And uh, uh, there was actually a, a report that ranked countries like the US and the UK right at the top of, of uh, health, public health preparedness. Uh, the government itself thought it was prepared because it had just, uh, in 2018, published a 36-page biodefense strategy. The Department of Health and Human Services has a whole staff dedicated to this issue. Uh, it's kind of tempting to say you had one job. I am amazed that there is so little discussion in the public sphere of this chronic, disastrous failure uh, by that part of the government that was supposed to be ready for a pandemic. Uh, and, and I just can't quite work out where they all were and what they were doing. Uh, the, the conventional response, which one often hears from liberals and progressives these days, is you see the pandemic proves that we need big government, we need more uh, government. Actually, it's the opposite. What the pandemic has shown is that big government has been quite hopeless. Uh, and all of those bureaucrats whose job this was somehow were asleep at the at the wheel. So I think there's a, a need actually for a very, very serious inquiry into what went wrong. Uh, we, we ought to have had a rapid response to this. And we know that that was possible because some countries did it right. Uh, take Taiwan. Taiwan responded even before the Chinese had admitted the truth of the situation in Wuhan because they rightly smelt a rat. And they put the kind of measures in place that allow you to contain a pandemic and prevent it really spreading through your population. The testing was ramped up. Uh, they then had contact tracing. South Korea did the same. Uh, and we know how this is supposed to work. The real question is why it did not work in the United States. And the same question needs to be asked of the UK and indeed of other countries that failed badly. Italy springs to mind. The other thing I'd say is that we need to look closely at the ways in which policy flipped because we went from complete insouciance, January, February, into March. This is just the flu. It's not going to happen. It's not a big deal. And by the way, this was not... Uh, particularly a, a mistake conservatives made, if I remember rightly, the liberal media was much more likely to dismiss the threat uh, of uh, COVID-19 uh, than conservatives were. In fact, Tucker Carlson was one of the few people in the media who got this right, uh, although you won't see that acknowledged in the Washington Post anytime soon. But we went from really insouciance to panic. And we went into panic mode partly because of another Neil Ferguson. It's very unfortunate, but the man whose report caused a complete U-turn in policy is named Neil Ferguson, an epidemiologist at Imperial College London. Luckily, he spells his first name differently from me. But we, we then went into panic mode and started locking down huge sectors of the economy. And I, I do think that when historians come to assess all this, they'll say this overreaction compounded the earlier mistakes of neglect by creating a much greater economic shock than was actually necessary to contain the spread of the virus. So we really do need to conduct some kind of inquiry, a bit like the 9-11 Commission, to figure out what went wrong, because a lot went wrong. And it certainly wasn't just that the president's Twitter feed went wrong. I think that's the wrong way to think about this. 
Got it. Uh, Eddie, from an economic point of view, you and I have talked over the month, uh, past couple months about all the economic policies that have been adopted to try to lessen the impact of the, uh, uh, of the virus and the, and, the, and the policies adopted to prevent the virus. What's next? What is the next thing to do? Some people have said we ought to do an infrastructure project or we ought to, you know, think about more subsidies of one kind or another, state and local governments. What, what is your take on it as an economist? Well, there are a couple of things that we need to think about. Um, one of the things that has been criticized in the current legislation, which, by the way, I think was pretty good, uh, the, the CARES Act, um, it, you know, I hate to say this, but we actually got, the government actually got much of it right. And uh, while we were complaining about how Congress took a long time, they basically took a week. Um, that's almost unprecedented in terms of congressional speed. So uh, actually government behaved pretty well in this case rather than poorly. Uh, and, and most of the things were good because what they needed to do was ensure that the, the private sector had enough liquidity to get them get the businesses through the shock. Uh, whether it will be enough, uh, I think, remains to be seen, but at least it was in, in the right direction. The one thing that is criticized in the CARES Act um, is the, the fact that uh, we created an unemployment system that pays people a lot of money to stay out of work. I, I must say, I'm not quite as concerned about that, and I'll, I'll give you two reasons for it. Uh, go back to what I said uh, 20 minutes ago. We, we've got 40 million people unemployed out there. Uh, if I'm a worker with a job at Walmart, and I spoke to some of the execs at Walmart about this, uh, Walmart's average wages, in fact, 70% of their wages are actually below what people can get uh, in unemployment compensation with the federal supplement. Um, and Walmart's not seeing people quit their jobs in order to go out and be on unemployment. And, and it's for an obvious reason. If you're a worker and you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to quit, go on unemployment for a while, and then when my unemployment runs out, I'll go take my job back at Walmart. Yeah, good luck. You got 40 million people you're competing with. And so we're not seeing that as a major problem. But some of the things that Congress is thinking about fixing are little tweaks in that where they would give a reemployment bonus. You don't have to stay out of work. You can get the same $600 supplement even if you go back to work. That's probably a good idea. It's a, I think it's a, not a big deal at this point, but it's probably a good idea to move in the right direction. You mentioned infrastructure. And, and again, this comes back to what Neil was saying about how, how do we actually deal with this uh, in terms of long-run strategy? Is the, has the government gotten it right? Uh, one of the things we know is, uh, and President Obama, of course, learned this the hard way, there's no such thing as shovel-ready. Uh, when I was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, we were already in a recession. This was Thanksgiving week, a weekend of uh, 2008. President Obama had already been reelected. We said, well, you know, we know these guys are going to do stimulus. Should we just get going on it right now? And we looked at what a dollar spent in the Department of Transportation would be on building highways, roads, bridges, and so forth. And for every dollar that you put in there, about 25 cents gets out in the first year and the rest trickles out over the next 11 years. So the problem is if you're trying to stimulate the economy, that kind of infrastructure is not a good way to go. The infrastructure we need right now is infrastructure that deals specifically with the pandemic. And again, it's almost a cliche to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, right now, the most important thing to do is to manage the disease. We're not going to get to herd immunity in the near future. Hopefully, we'll get a vaccine, but we can't keep the economy closed until we get a vaccine. So the only thing we can do is manage the disease. And the way you do that is by testing, tracing, and, and trying to get the transmission rate, which is 
the initial transmission rate people refer to as R0, that's the uh, epidemiology term for it. Uh, it's at about two, we need to get that closer to one, we'd like to get it below one. We're not gonna get it down to those levels without doing a much better job of testing, tracing, quarantining. And so we should be spending as much as it takes on that. It's tiny compared to the cost of the economy. We are losing $20 billion a day. There's no way we can spend too much on that activity. Got it. A big public works project to find a vaccine is what we need. Vaccine and to keep people safe in the interim and to manage the disease as best possible. Keep, find out who the people are who are transmitting it. Got it. I wanna to turn to some of the questions we're getting. Uh, Neil, this one is for you, I believe. It's from Piero. It says, US and Britain have massive economic trouble but East, East Asia hasn't. So I don't know if that's factually true, but you can weigh in on that. The economic impact on China, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, et cetera, is far lower than on the US and Britain. What does this mean for the future of the world economy and the balance of power? Well, it's maybe a bit premature to come to that conclusion. Uh, let me start with China. Uh, China's, in terms of uh, the supply side, uh, its manufacturing is is certainly achieving a V-shaped recovery. There's no question that by most measures, capacity utilizations raced back up into the 90% plus range. But that is not true of the Chinese consumer. Uh, the demand side looks distinctly uh, hampered by the kind of things that uh, we, we've discussed earlier, uh, the, the risk aversion that goes hand in hand with uh, a, a, a pandemic, and the, also the sense that uh, people are going to save rather than spend uh, out of a sense of, uh, of heightened uh, 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 risk aversion. So I, I think it remains to be seen just how, how far China can bounce back. But it's certainly true that looking at the situation of the US, uh, China's is, 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 is better. Uh, the, the other East Asian economies are an interesting predicament because although they did the public health piece very well indeed, and uh, Taiwan comes top of the class, uh, they are economies that rely very heavily on exports. I mean, they are global economies. And so it's hard for them to uh, recover if the world as a whole is in uh, recession, if not uh, depression. Uh, I think we need to be very careful about whose uh, lessons we learn. I think a lot of policymakers made a terrible mistake, which I characterize as learning from the wrong China. Uh, they, uh, they looked at what the Chinese did in Hubei when they belatedly recognized that they had disaster on their hands. Uh, what they did in Hubei was completely to shut things down and more or less to lock people in their apartments. And uh, Western policymakers in mid-March decided, oh, well, that, that's what we should do. The real Chinese lesson was a lesson from the other China, from the Republic of China, Taiwan. And, and that lesson is important. This goes back to something Eddie was talking about. In order to get a pandemic like this under control, you need testing, it needs to be widespread and it needs to be uh, accurate, and you need contact tracing so that when you identify somebody with this virus, which is, remember, a stealth virus, which you can have without any symptoms, and you need to be able to track down the people that infected uh, individuals have been in touch with. The Taiwanese have done a brilliant job of this, and, and we need to spend a lot more time than we're spending learning from those techniques, because with the right technology, you can start doing a much more nuanced policy response, uh, much more nuanced management, to use uh, Eddie's term. Uh, one very striking feature of, of this disease is that it's 
ageist. It goes after the elderly and it's uh, much more likely to kill you the older you are above, say, 60. And it mercifully, unlike most pandemics in history, leaves kids pretty much alone. And uh, even if they carry the virus, they're not affected in any way or any significant way we can detect. That means that you can use technology to target the people who are most vulnerable and make sure that they are the ones who are kept out of contact with any possible carriers. Mm -hmm. So I do think that East Asia has a lot to teach us. I'm not sure we're learning the right things from it because I think we've been slightly hoodwinked by Chinese propaganda into thinking that what they did in Hubei was somehow a model. Uh, Rather the opposite, I think, is true. The real lesson is that the People's Republic of China screwed this up on a massive scale, is primarily responsible for the pandemic, and was only able to contain it within its own borders by measures that were extremely ruthless and harsh. We shouldn't really be copying. Yeah. Uh, Eddie, this is a question for you from Jacob. Will this crisis spur any changes in the trends of outsourcing or automation? Huh. Yeah, uh, I think it, I actually think it will. Um, I, I, as you know, Tom, I'm a I'm a free trade guy. I like markets and I like to take advantage of trade as much as possible. But I must say that uh, even I have become uh, a, a little bit more cautious on this. And I think that the most important issue that we raise right now is uh, it comes back to what Neil was talking about with the with China, um, relying on China for all of our antibiotics and some supplies that are obviously going to be crucial right now uh, is problematic. It, we don't have to produce those here, but I do think that we, ought, we need to be thinking more in terms of long-run diversification. Uh, we can't have critical resources being controlled by a country, a single country, particularly when that single country may at some point decide that it's hostile to us or doesn't like all of the policies uh, that we are engaged in. So uh, I do think there's going to be some rethinking of this. I'm not a, uh, an anti-China person, but I do think that we are going to have to think about more diversification. It's, it's clearly problematic right now, and uh, we don't want to be in that position again. Neil, maybe we'll close with a, with a parallel question for you. How is the pandemic going to change uh, the balance of power around the world over the next five or 10 years? Uh, It's a great question on which to end. A lot of people have been uh, talking about uh, a fundamental shift, uh, possibly away from uh, the United States towards China. I've read a whole series of quite negative articles uh, by American uh, journalists and Applebaum most recently in The Atlantic. And of course, the Chinese uh, government would love that narrative to sort of take hold. And they've done their best with all kinds of disinformation and propaganda to to bend the narrative away from uh, a disaster caused by China into a disaster that China's magically uh, going to to be able to resolve with uh, cheap masks and ventilators. Uh, I I take a somewhat different uh, view of this. I think, firstly, that Cold War II had already begun last year, if not earlier. And all that the pandemic has done is really to reveal that. Uh, It's revealed the extent of the antagonism between the United States and the Chinese government. And I think it's also revealed that to Europeans and others who may have been in some doubt about uh, the true nature of the the regime in, in Beijing. Now, it's conventional in the media to say, oh, 
what a terrible job uh, Donald Trump does as a, as a, as a leader. Uh, the international uh, order is collapsing and the United States is, is ceding its, its leadership. Well, that's a very interesting uh, narrative. But uh, let me ask a question which uh, an economist like Eddie will enjoy. Uh, when you're uh, in trouble financially, do you turn to A, the People's Bank of China, or B, the Federal Reserve? And the answer is B. In fact, one of the striking features of the crisis is how much assistance the Fed has been able to give other central banks, uh, not only with uh, swap lines, uh, something it did back in the financial crisis, but also with repo arrangements. So uh, the Fed is clearly the dominant player when it comes to international financial stability, and I don't think any other major central bank would, uh, would doubt that. Uh, it's the dollar that people are scrambling for in a crisis like this, not the renminbi. So I think it's important to look a little behind the, the facade of, uh, of daily news coverage. And let me add a final point. Uh, where do you think the vaccine is going to be found if indeed we do get to a vaccine? Is it going to be A, uh, in China, or, or B, in the United States? Well, Right now, there are way more teams working uh, on a vaccine in, in North America than in East Asia. Uh, I'm not guaranteeing that it won't be a Chinese team that succeeds. I'm not even guaranteeing anybody will succeed. But history would lead you to expect that it will be the United States or maybe one of its allies, maybe the UK, which is quite well positioned actually in this field that, that pulls it off. So no, I think this story of a fundamental shift to China is the kind of thing that you know journalists love, but they were predicting the decline and fall of the United States consistently, I think since about the 1920s, if not earlier, and it's surely time we retired that narrative. Oh, Sandy. Ed and Neil, thank you so much. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Tom. Great. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Tuesday, May 12th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern with Russell Berman, who will be talking about COVID-19 and globalism. Russell is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor in the humanities at Stanford University. He recently served as senior advisor in the policy and planning staff of the United States Department of State. You can join the next briefing at the same link you signed in on today. And you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our Twitter, Twitter handle is HooverINST. Thank you again for joining us and have a great weekend.